Welcome to Liver Talk, a podcast series that shares personal and professional stories about hepatitis as well as liver related news. Before we begin this episode, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land wherever you are listening to this podcast. We pay our respect to the elders past, present and emerging and to any Indigenous people who are listening to this podcast. In this episode, we talk to Steve Allshop about drug law and policy in Australia. Our conversation with Steve was in the context of the recent publication of the 2019 National Drug Strategy Household Survey which showed that there is a changing attitude and perception among Australians, including toward cannabis use and pill testing, as well as border policy change. Steve brought with him a wealth of experience, having been involved in prevention, treatment and policy research and practice, as well as service management for almost 40 years. He's been the director of two Australian National Drug Research Centres, both the National Centre for Education and Training on Addiction and the National Drug Research Institute. He'd also previously held senior roles with the Western Australian Government Drug and Alcohol Office. Steve's contribution to this field is well regarded, and in 2015, he received the Australasian Professional Society on Alcohol and Other Drugs Senior Scientist Award. He'd been the winner of the National Honour Roll as part of the 2017 Alcohol and Drug Excellence and Innovation Award, and delivered the 2019 James Rank Innovation, which honours a significant contributor to research, practice, and or policy in the Australasian alcohol and drug sector. We were exceptionally lucky to be able to speak with Steve and drew many parallels to our work in bile hepatitis, where accessing healthcare can be linked with criminalised activity and be fought with devastating stigma and discrimination and associated negative health consequences. We spoke with Steve about what the flow and effects of shifts in public attitude and understanding could look like, what is important when considering changes to drug laws and policy, as well as acknowledging the vital importance of improving access to treatment and addressing stigma and discrimination. We began by asking Steve why he thinks drug law and policy needs to change. In terms of arguments for drug law reform, there's, there's a very simple um, answer to that question. And that is, if we keep doing the same thing, we're going to keep having the same results. Um, I don't think anyone in our community is satisfied with the, the level of harm that we have in our community, or indeed the proportion of people who are affected by drug use who actually come, in, come into contact with treatment services. So we've got to change it. I think the first argument is that if we want to improve the number of people who engage with treatment, if we want to reduce problems in our community, we've got to try something different. The next key argument for me is there's not much evidence that giving people criminal sanctions actually alters what, you know, what outcomes exist for them, other than making things worse. And it probably stopped a lot of people putting their hand up and asking for help. You know, it's clear to me from a moral and from an ethical and from an evidence point of view that you're always going to have a better outcome if your first line of response is a, a health response as opposed to a criminal response. So I think we've got to change it. There's far too many people who are stigmatized and discriminated against who are affected by drug use. There are far too few people putting their hand up for help. And a large part of that is the, the, the criminal sanctions that exist for possession of small amounts for personal use or indeed personal use of small amounts uh, of, of drugs. 
I think we've also got to avoid a knee-jerk reaction to go to the opposite extreme. Uh, and to give an illustration of that, I think the worst possible outcome would be that we had drug law reform that gave enormous influence to vested interests. And we've seen that happening in some countries that, you know, there are people ready to jump in who've got very strong vested interests. And suddenly you can have industries that are, are worth millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars who are dictating how a drug might be made available. Now, we've not had great success in relation to pharmaceutical drugs, in relation to tobacco, in relation to, to alcohol. So I think we have to be clear about what we mean by drug law reform. I think we need to avoid a leap into the unknown that's hard to undo, if you like, subsequently. And I think another argument is that, you know, there's a lot of, we, we need to bring the community along with us. I think we've still got a way to go. I think things have improved in, in recent years, but I still think we've got a way to go. And a guy called Griffith Edwards, and Griffith said something along the lines of, prevention can never be imposed on a community. It has to be an invitation to change. And that invitation has to be sensible. And I guess it also has to be seen to have benefit for people. So, you know, I think we have to bring people along with us. And I think that's even more important when we live in a country such as Australia, where you're after 18, you've got legal requirements to vote. Not necessarily everybody does, but we have a very large proportion of the population vote. So you have to bring people alongside you because if you don't, then you're not going to bring the politicians alongside. Some of the changes that we've seen from the perceptions of the public through the latest National Drug Strategy Household Survey um, yeah. show that there's, you know, a lot more people are wanting people to be able, able to access pill testing, for there to be less punitive measures around small amount of drug possession, as you mentioned. What, what do you think has led to this shift in perception? I think there's a number of things that have happened over the last couple of decades. I think we've begun to, and we've only just begun to, we've begun to address stigma and discrimination a little better. I, I still think we've got a long way to go there. But I think that you know some of the stereotypes have been challenged. I think increasing numbers of a large proportion of the people have been affected by drug use in our community. We, and a, a, a significant thing has been the humanising the speaking out of mums and dads and grandparents who are saying, not a junkie, but my child. And I think a number of people have done some excellent work from consumer groups to service providers, to parent groups, to some people in the media. I think the betrayal in the media has changed. I think there's been improved dialogue, but I still think it's got a very long way to go. Uh, and I think the other thing is a lot of people have realised that we do need to change what we're doing. But uh, when you look at it, those those figures, we've got to remember, you know, about half of the people that they survey don't agree to be surveyed. So we may be missing some things out. It's still a significant proportion of people who aren't in support. And, and when you've got, again, com compulsory voting at age 18, you don't just need a, an okay majority, you need an overwhelming majority sometimes to shift the status quo. So on the one hand, the very minimal step we have to take is that we move the criminal sanction approach to people in possession of small amounts. And there's a very large majority of the population actually support that. 
Now, what we need to recognize, of course, when we say that is not everybody who consumes drugs needs treatment. So you don't auto, you know, just say, oh, you've smoked some cannabis, you're going into treatment. That's not necessary. It's going to overwhelm the treatment system and so on. But for me, the first minimum step is to say what we're going to do is we're not going to give people, people criminal sanctions for possessing small amounts of personal use. And probably then we need some system whereby we can ensure that if there is someone who needs treatment, then they're immediately able to get that. And that means you need to improve access to treatment. It's no good having a system like that and you live in the remotest part of Western Australia where there aren't any treatment services that you can access. You, you need to have something in place for people who have need. That's the minimal first step. Then I think we also have to start saying, well, do we change the laws about possession um, so that it's, you know, for example, like they have in, in the ACT. But then you've got to say, well, how do people get supply? So do they get supply illegally? Do they grow their own? What do you do to stop them selling that to someone else? So, you know, to, or, or, and how do you stop commercial interests getting involved? So you know, those sorts of questions, I think, have to be asked. And then we also need to say, well, we may reduce some problems, but might we increase the risk that some people might use a bit more often? What are the implications for things like workplace safety or road safety? So you have to, I think, really think this through. And in fact, um, it's not such a radical idea that it didn't stop John Howard proposing that sort of model where people were diverted into treatment as opposed to being put into the criminal justice system. It's not a radical left-wing um, idea. It's one that originated in a, with a conservative government. So let's get that working and let's start a debate about what alternative models exist let's put those models into place and let's carefully evaluate them to make sure there are no adverse consequences the other thing i think we should do is because a number of countries and jurisdictions overseas some of the u.s states canada uruguay portugal various countries have, have done uh, gone into these areas in various ways. Let's carefully look at the evidence that's emerging from those and make an evidence-based decision about the best way forward. Yeah, it is such a, a complex topic and there's so many things to consider. Um, and I think what you talk about in terms of the barriers that it can lead to for people accessing care and treatment when it's appropriate and when they want to is something that, you know, we also see quite a lot in our work with viral hepatitis, where that stigma and the discrimination and the perceptions around what may or may not happen when people access care is a really big barrier to people achieving better health outcomes and accessing treatment, both for their drug use, but also more broadly. And so do you think that if the laws and the policies were to change in some way, do you think that that would have an impact, either positive or negative, around the stigma affecting people who use drugs and people who inject drugs? Well, I think it will. And it's not just that I think it will. The evidence, for example, from Portugal was that it did. Portugal didn't legalise drugs. It, it still remains on, on, on the, the law books. But 
it, essentially what they did was they put a public health response instead of a criminal response. And uh, there wasn't an increase in drug use. In fact, the opposite, especially amongst young people. There was a decrease in, in HIV uh, and there was an increase in the number of people who went into treatment. You've got to recognize that they didn't just change the law. They did make access to treatment easier. And that's really important. You can't just say, oh, well, um, we're going to refer people to treatment and there's nowhere for people to go. So you do, you do need to, at the same time, invest more in prevention. You need to invest more in treatment. You need to invest more in harm reduction. It's not just, the, it's not the only thing you do. But look, I, I think the criminal status of drugs does contribute to at least some people who, who knows how many, a significant proportion of people not being willing to put their hands up and, and seek help. I mean, there are other things that are interrelated to that. The, the language that we use, uh, and, and when I'm teaching, you know, if I say to people, how many of you abuse alcohol? And very few people put their hands up, if any. But, and then if I change the language to say, well, how many of you have ever driven your car when you shouldn't have? How many of you have turned up late for work because you're drinking the night before? How many of you have had an argument with a partner or a friend or a parent because you're drinking? How many of you have felt so horrible you stayed in bed all day? And the one that gets the biggest response, how many of you have ended up in a relationship you might not have otherwise ended up in? And there's usually a laugh, but it makes a point. You see people going, oh, yeah, I've done that, or oh, I've done that. So the language abuse, misuse, it's illegal, all of those things. Uh, and then the way some people react to people, you brought it on yourselves, why should we help the likes of you? Uh, which I often say, that's legitimate. As long as we do that for people who drive their car too fast, eat too many pies, go yachting in bad weather and need rescue, you know, we don't say to them, well, you brought it on yourself, so if you're right. Uh, there is personal responsibilities, relevant and, and critical. But we don't blame people. We reach out and help them. That's not what happens here. So in answer to the question is, you know, will, will the laws make a difference? I think they will make a difference, but they won't be sufficient. We also have to tackle the language. We also have to tackle the stigma. We also have to uh, tackle the discrimination or lack of help and care that people get. My view is we should treat people affected by drug use with exactly the same degree of need for responsibility and with exactly the same degree of dignity as we do anybody else. Definitely agree with your points there. And, you know, the connection between perception and the laws and policies that are in place and how that impacts stigma are, are really hard to measure, but definitely interconnected. There are a lot of really topical issues at the moment around this being discussed, especially in Melbourne and Victoria and also across Australia with the medically supervised injecting room in Victoria and discussion around the opening of a second site and things like pill testing has been really topical across the country. And a lot of people are having conversations with their colleagues and friends and family. Do you have any advice for people who are advocating for change and having the tough conversation? Well, I think it's about making sure that people are informed and making sure, I mean, this is a highly contentious area. And so, you know, don't push people into corners because all that ever happens with that is they push back. But I think one of the first things I'd be doing is, is, is humanizing this debate. This isn't about whatever, you know, and I use these terms, I hate them, junkies, addicts. This is about somebody's daughter, somebody's mother, somebody's sister, somebody's friend, somebody's son, somebody's work colleague. And I think 
humanizing it first and foremost is, is, is critically important. The other thing is that we need to recognize that people are influenced by things that matter to them that are probably more immediate rather than distant. So when people like me used to bang on about um, um, alcohol, drinking too much alcohol might cause cirrhosis or brain injury, which is, is important information for people to have. But for most people, they don't know anybody who's got that. They can't see it. It's 40 years in the future. And I think the debate about alcohol change, for example, when we started seeing concerns raised about intoxication, how your children might be put at risk out in the city centre on a Friday and Saturday night, uh, drink driving. And so it was made personally relevant and it was made immediate. So if we do things, what's the benefit for me? And I remember when we increased access to, to methadone treatment when I was working in South Australia and I was given the job of going around to communities um, at sort of Tuesday night at nine o'clock in a remote town talking about this issue. And a lot of people were opposed to the idea of, of methadone. And, and I, whilst I didn't agree with it, I got what their concerns were. And, and so I remember once I said, well, look, you might not like the idea of, of, of methadone, but there's good evidence that if you get more people into treatment on methadone, you actually see a significant reduction in property crime. And surely you're interested in that, uh, reducing the risk of property crime. Now, you've got to be careful when you have that argument that you don't contribute to the sort of stereotypes that every drug user is a criminal. But I think what we have to do is we, we, we need to argue about the benefits to the individual. Um, and I think, you know, the harm where we've had great gains in relation to harm reduction, for example, reducing the risk of HIV and hepatitis C for the broad community, you know, is an important argument. This is why it's relevant for you. So I think humanizing it, making sure that people see what the benefits for them might be, recognizing the contentions, gradually pe bringing people on side and saying, look, this also providing evidence why we need to change because it's what we're doing just now isn't having the effect that we want it to. And we actually want to make things better. And I think we also have to bring on side the media. And I think there are people in the media who are looking for a different dialogue about alcohol and drug use in general and illicit drug use in particular. Well, it's uh, been really interesting to speak with you about all of these issues and there's so much more to follow up for a lot of people. Uh, where, where would you recommend people would go for, for more information if they were wanting to find out more? Well, I'd encourage people uh, the best thing I ever did in my life was go and do an addiction studies course and 40 years later I'm still you know working in it and, and um, it's a fantastic field to work in so think about formal study but if not there's now lots of web one of the things that's happened with COVID is the webinars that are out there from organizations like NDARC, um, uh, uh, the Australian Drug Foundation and others so get some credible sources of information go to the webinars if there are seminars opening up in your town go to those Talk to people in consumer groups, talk to parent support groups, and there's a number of drug family support organizations. Come to organizations such as the one that I, I work in, the National Drug Research Institute. So there's, there's a number of centers around the country. Get information from them. And the, the European Monitoring Center on uh, uh, Drugs and Dependence and Addiction is, a, is an excellent site to look at because they've got some good data, they've got good reports, good 
policy discussions. So there's a, a, a wide range of areas that you can go. I think the other thing that we all should do is call out stigma and discrimination where we see it and humanize the issues. It has, it can have disastrous impacts. There's a film uh, that I have an association with called Wild Butterfly. It, it, it will come back into the cinemas um, when, when uh, COVID allows, but uh, that's a story about the daughter of a friend of mine who she was uh, the stigma and discrimination that she experienced from the formal media on social media was appalling. It made her life and her family's life awful at a time when they were battling to, to save her life. And it resulted, in my view, in um, poor treatment and she eventually passed and she wanted her the story of her life to make a difference for other people and for me the single biggest issue now is for all of us to call out stigma and discrimination because it has disastrous outcomes and it prevents people getting the help that they deserve and need so always remember this could be your friend your sister your brother your 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 child um, your work colleague someone you love most of us have been affected by our own drug use or, or another person's drug use. And I think we owe it to the, the whole of our community to care for everyone in our community. That has been so insightful and um, really valuable to talk with you today. So we're very grateful for your time and thanks so much. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm honoured. Liver Talk is produced by Hepatitis Victoria, Liverwell, a community organisation in Nam, Melbourne, Australia, that supports people affected by or at risk of liver disease. 